Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and thank you for joining us. If you'd uh, like to take a break in whatever you're doing and join us in prayer, we will be praying Psalm 51. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness, in your compassion, blot out my offense. O wash me more and more from my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. My offenses truly I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done? That you may be justified when you give sentence, and be without reproach when you judge. O see, in guilt I was born, a sinner was I conceived. Indeed you love truth in the heart. Then, in the secret of my heart, teach me wisdom. O purify me, then I shall be clean. O wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear rejoicing and gladness, that the bones you have crushed may revive. From my sins turn away your face, and blot out all my guilt. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, nor deprive me of your Holy Spirit. Give me again the joy of your help. With a spirit of fervor sustain me, that I may teach transgressors your ways, and sinners may return to you. O rescue me, God, my helper, and my tongue shall ring out your goodness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For in sacrifice you take no delight. Burnt offering from me you would refuse. My sacrifice a contrite spirit, a humbled contrite heart you will not spurn. In your goodness show favor to Zion. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with lawful sacrifice, holocausts offered on your altar. And now let us pray together. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this week's episode of Truth and Charity, Bishop Kevin Rhodes explains one of the more common teaching tools Jesus uses in the Gospels, parables. Hear more about how they were useful back then and how storytelling can still be useful today. Bishop Rhodes then offers his reflections upon one of his favorite Bible stories, the parable of the prodigal son. He talks about the lessons we can learn from the younger son's conversion, the father's joyful forgiveness, and the older son's need to love his brother. Afterwards, it's on to the importance of reaching out and building bridges with other faiths in a respectful yet uncompromising way, including the fruits of positive dialogues and the call to Christian unity. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. You can submit your question for a future show by going to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or by downloading the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've got a lot to talk about today. One of the things is because we've got a big parable coming up on Saturday's Gospel. I thought maybe we could start with that, the Catholic Word of the Week. What is a parable? Well, a parable is a short story based on a familiar image or life experience that teaches a spiritual lesson. And Jesus was fond of using parables, again, to communicate to the listeners 
an important spiritual lesson. And we see he used parables so many times in his public ministry. The disciples once asked him, why do you teach them in parables? Yeah. And it's interesting how our Lord answered that. I think about this sometimes. He said, because the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are revealed to you, but they are not revealed to them. And I think to myself, what is what exactly does that mean? Right. I think it's meaning that um, he's teaching his doctrine, especially to those who accept him, mm-hmm. accept him as the Messiah. Back to your question about what the word parable means. You know, I always like to get back to the Greek. Okay. You know the Greek word, Kyle? I don't. You don't? No. Okay, no, I'm teasing you. <laughs> Parabole, and it means comparison. Huh. So basically a juxtaposition. So Jesus is telling a, a story, and you have a comparison to teach a, a spiritual lesson. Sometimes it seems like he's trying to make things more relatable like hey, let me let me give you an example that you could understand uh, there's a shepherd and he's got a bunch of sheep and you know and then sometimes it seems like he's trying to make things more confusing than it needs to be and like <laughs> so what does this mean and then he has to explain the parable and stuff like right, that right right it, does it have to do with audience or do, do some of them hit and some of them miss or i think so because it's always interesting to see who he's speaking to when Uh he's giving a parable. You know, sometimes it's the Pharisees or sometimes it's to the disciples themselves. So you kind of can see how he's, he's giving a parable oftentimes according to the audience. You think of the, the parable of the good Samaritan or the parable of the 10 virgins. I mean, there's just so many wonderful parables that uh, parable of the marriage feast or, the parable of the the last judgment, the rich man and Lazarus. Who's he speaking to? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rich people in that audience. Yeah, you know. So, yeah. is the last judgment? Is that the one with the sheep and the goats? Yes. Matthew yes. twenty five. Uh, do you have a favorite parable? Oh my goodness! Um, definitely the prodigal son would be up there. The parable of the last judgment. The parable of the good Samaritan. Those would be three of my favorite parables just off the... Oh, and the sower and the seed, that always is a rich parable. You know, I love when that comes up because I don't have to preach. Jesus explains it. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, well, you've got the, the rocky soil and the right. thorns and stuff. And then he says, okay, the rocky soil is this kind Means of a person. This. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think we see this even today with our priests and homilies using stories to to make make the gospel relatable and yeah. we'll bring up a, this happened to me recently and it reminds me of this situation yes. what is it about storytelling that kind of draws people in and helps them to understand the truth of our faith you know i and the pope does that too mm-hmm. i think really when i'm sitting listening to a speech or something one is able to illustrate it with a story it it kind of breaks up the speech in a good way in the sense of uh just puts flesh onto what one's trying to teach and I, I really think it's it can be very effective as, as long as the story is appropriate and isn't like distracting from yeah. the message that yeah. you want to give, which you have to be careful. You know, I, I chose a parable as my Lenten message this year, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Mm-hmm. The publican is the tax collector. Just about the attitude in prayer that we are to have, that 
humility of, of the publican. It's just kind of a parable for our people to think about during the 40 days of Lent. And I think that's a good thing in the sense of maybe taking one of the parables and just keep it in mind for several weeks and really allow it to speak to one's heart. So that's why I kind of presented that as a Lenten message. All right. Well, you mentioned the prodigal son being one of your favorites, and that's actually going to be Saturday's gospel. Let's just start with explaining the story of the prodigal son. Sure. I mean, I think everybody knows the parable, the younger son who left his father's house and squandered his inheritance, and and then he was reduced to a state of real poverty. He ended up having to get a job feeding pigs. And... Um, but then he kind of came to his senses, Jesus said, and he decided to go back to his father and to tell him he was sorry uh, to be repent. And of course, the father welcomed him back with open arms, which shows us the greatness of God's mercy. Again, it's always good to look at the context. Mm-hmm. Why did Jesus give us that parable? And it was connected. He also gave the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. They're all three in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. Okay. But they were all in the context of the complaints he was receiving from the Pharisees and the scribes. They were complaining that he was welcoming sinners and eating with them. Yeah. That's when he gave these parables. He, he's basically demonstrating, our Lord is demonstrating that he came into the world to save sinners, mm-hmm. you know, to seek the lost sheep. And that's the point of the prodigal son parable. You know, I always think about the first lesson that we can learn from the parable of the prodigal son. And that's about the reality of sin and what sin does to us. Because notice this young, younger son, he took his share of his father's inheritance, left his father's house, squandered the money on sinful things, lived a very dissolute life, a selfish life. And what happened to him? What's the reality of sin? As I said, he ended up having to get a job feeding pigs. That wasn't just a menial job. It was really for the Jewish people, it was considered a cursed because pigs were considered unclean and then not only did he have to feed pigs for a living the parable says that he was just about starving and he was hungering for the husks which he fed the pigs yeah so yeah he lost his money he lost his inheritance but what else did he lose he lost his dignity as a human being well that's what sin does to us sin hurts us That's the reality. When we choose to leave our Father's house, to leave God's house, and live apart from God, what happens to us? We end up unhappy Mm. and miserable, a state of misery. And that's what happens when we live selfish lives. We're only concerned about ourselves, our own pleasures, and we abandon God, and we don't care about other people. We end up miserable. So that's what sin does. Sin puts us into conflict with God, to conflict with others, and even with ourselves. We lose our dignity as sons and daughters of God. But the beautiful thing about the parable is the main message, which follows, is that everything isn't lost. Mm. We can return. We can return to our Father's house. Notice what Jesus says, the prodigal son came to his senses. In other words, he realized what had happened to him. He had sinned. 
he was very humble at that point. He, he said he's no longer deserved to be called his father's son. So he decided he's going to go back and ask his father to take him back as a hired hand. He was so humble, he wasn't asking to be received back as a son, but as a hired hand. That was real conversion. You know, it takes humility. Mm -hmm. Um, He was really sorry. He admitted what he did was wrong. So that's the second thing. So you have the attitude of the, the younger son, this conversion, this repentance. And then third, very, very beautiful, the attitude of the father. Notice, uh, this is an important detail, the father saw his son coming from a long way off, from a distance. He must have been there every day, waiting and watching and hoping for his son's return. And that's how God is with us. God, our father, loves us so much that it hurts him when we fall into sin. He, He sees us in misery. He doesn't want us to be miserable. He wants us to have, to be happy. He wants us to, he wants us to come home. And notice when the son arrives, the father doesn't scold him. He doesn't punish him. He's so happy that his son's back that he embraces him and he kisses him. He has the servants put the finest robe on him, ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And, you know, all that, the fatted calf he has slaughtered so they could celebrate his son's return. And I always tell people, or I often will tell people in confession, especially people who maybe are, are, are really distraught over a sin that they've committed, I always say, there's so much joy in God's heart that you're here, mm. that you've returned to him, to the Father's house, because that's his desire. I mean, God desires our salvation. He wants us to be saved. He wants us to be happy, and he's always ready to welcome us home. So really, this parable comes to life every time we go to confession. You know, we're like the prodigal son. We go, we acknowledge our guilt, our sin. We ask for the Father's forgiveness, and God, in his love, absolves us. He restores our dignity, really, as his sons and daughters. That's why it's it's so beautiful to... Uh, to to go to confession, to receive the great gift of our Lord's mercy. That was great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. There's another character in the story also that I feel we might be able to relate to sometimes, and that's the older son who has this kind of jealousy, uh, kind of it's a different type of a pride saying, why does he get all of this? I've been here this whole time, and you're celebrating this kid that, left and lost everything. Yeah. We have to all be careful that we aren't like the older son. I think there's some pride there as well as jealousy. Okay, he, he, he's been a dutiful son, perhaps, but I'm sure he wasn't perfect. But when we resent, and that's what happened, he, he resented his father's mercy. That's really a lack of love on the part of the older son. Where was his love for his brother? That's the question I have. So his jealousy and his resentment, I think, came from the fact that he really didn't have that genuine love for his brother. That's where we have to be careful, you know, if, if we resent God's mercy towards others. And also calling us to admit, and, and there's no indication in the parable that the older son had any admission of his own 
unworthiness right. with his father. Because, as I said, I'm sure he wasn't the perfect son. Right. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop. Coming up, we'll chat about how we can work together with other faiths, uh, what sh- we should do when we disagree. And we'll have also questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we've been talking a little bit about the prodigal son, and you mentioned that the those three parables that happen around there all start with the idea of the Pharisees being upset and complaining, saying that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Uh, just a kind of a sign of Jesus' willingness to go out there and meet with people who disagreed or you know didn't really understand the Jewish faith of the time, uh, not comparing other religions necessarily to sinners and tax collectors and things like that. But this idea of reaching out and building bridges amongst Christian communities, maybe even even other non-Christian religions, uh, I think there's a, a balance here that sometimes we struggle with and might kind of fall to one side or the other. I'm curious your thoughts on on how do we balance that, like to to reach out and be a part of other religious practices or, you know, Bible studies, interreligious dialogue and prayer efforts uh, with at the same time not endorsing a belief that is not true? That's a good question. Um, Well, I think we always start from the, the greatest commandment that Jesus gives, love one another as I have loved you. Mm -hmm. So it's not just loving fellow Catholics. It's not just loving even fellow Christians. It's loving all. You know, so I think we begin with that. And then we get into the importance of building bridges with other faiths. We have the importance not only of ecumenism, ecumenism is our relationship with non Catholic Christians, but also interreligious relationships. Our relationships with, with non Christians can be Jews or Muslims or mm-hmm. Hindus or Buddhists or whatever religion, even our relationship with atheists, when you think about it. Moving on from that call to love everyone, I think we're also called to to cooperate for the good of the world, for the good of society. I see good fruits of, of uh, Catholics, for example, who work together with people of other Christian denominations or even with people of other faiths. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. I mean, I see collaboration happening in various good charitable works. And I think we do, we do. We have a responsibility to work together for the good of society. That doesn't mean that we're, you know, in somehow diluting what we believe in as Catholics. No. Mm-hmm. But, and we should work together to try to come to some, especially with our fellow Christians, to work towards reunion mm-hmm. to work towards christian unity that's why we had last month the week of prayer for christian unity and the popes have said following the second vatican council that the catholic church is irrevocably committed to the cause of christian unity so we do have various things even here in our diocese we had a recent conference on marriage and family which we did with the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints in south bend and it was a a really good experience where we share a lot of similar values uh, regarding marriage and family so for a day it was like a study day together Mm -hmm. um, and that was a really good thing there's other times where you have dialogues for example where there are disagreements and you come together to to share 
uh, and you know, there's official theological dialogues. Like I was the co-chair of the International Catholic Reformed Dialogue, theological dialogue, where you kind of tackle the issues of, of where you have disagreements to see if you can arrive at some kind of common understanding, maybe overcoming some misconceptions about the other's teachings. You know, and that's very difficult work, by the way, very yeah. challenging work. But, you know, there was that years of work between on the international level between the Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation on the doctrine of justification, mm-hmm. which was a key document in Luther's split from the Catholic Church. But after many years of painstaking dialogue, really on the scriptures, etc., we were able to have a joint declaration on the the doctrine of justification that was a big step and uh, cardinal ratzinger by the way future benedict the 16th he was very much a part of that and the way they structured it was what they could what we could affirm together catholics and lutherans mm-hmm. but then there's a, the next part areas where there was still some divergence of of belief but because of the convergence on the basics the areas of divergence were such that they were no longer what they call church dividing. But the church is involved, Catholic Church is involved with these ecumenical dialogues on with different groups. I mentioned I was the co-chair with the Reformed. Those are the communities that stem from John Calvin. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, of course, I mentioned the Lutheran Catholic dialogue. There's also an Orthodox Catholic dialogue. There's a Catholic Baptist dialogue. Uh, I mean, there's various dialogues going on. But it's not just the theological dialogue. There's also the importance of prayer for Christian unity, because ultimately it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, sure. you know, to bring us all back into one. That's Jesus's will. Jesus prayed at the Last Supper that we might all be one. So it's hard work. Yeah. And do we have a a ministry or an office or something like that in the diocese that's dedicated to ecumenical dialogue? We do. It's uh, up in South Bend side of the diocese. Mm -hmm. Um, It's within our secretariat for evangelization and discipleship. And Fred Everett's the the secretary for that. He's the head of that secretariat. And Sean Storer is the one who works especially in the area of ecumenism and interreligious affairs. And could you talk a little bit about some of the documentation or uh, things that have come from church teaching saying that we should be working on this? Some people might object to us reaching out and maybe even doing something with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and yeah. stuff like that. What are some, some things that we've learned that this is something that the Church is saying is important to be doing? Well, two of the documents of the Second Vatican Council would be the first thing. The, the, uh, the decree on ecumenism mm-hmm. and then the decree on interreligious matters, which in Latin, I know the Latin word is nostra etate. Nostra etate. Okay. And then since those two documents, the Second Vatican Council, there have been other things. There's the decree on ecumenism, which gives us all the norms, the church's laws regarding our relationships with other Christians. For example, things about mixed marriages, prayer services, where Catholics and Protestants pray together. All those norms are in what's called the ecumenical directory. And there's an office at the Vatican, a dicastery, which is called the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. 
and that's their main task. So the ecumenical directory was was uh, I think that was, it was back in the early '90s. That was put out by the Pontifical Council for promoting Christian unity and approved by by Pope St. John Paul II. So we have a lot of resources that mm-hmm. we can use, that we use and that we follow. One thing is important, especially with our fellow Christians, is to affirm what we believe together. Notice in the Second Vatican Council, they don't refer to, in the decree on ecumenism or anywhere in the council, to Protestants as heretics. They use a more positive uh, word. They, they speak of them as our separated brethren, okay. our separated brothers and sisters in Christ, recognizing that the first thing is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ mm-hmm. because we're both baptized. You know, there are valid baptisms. Yeah. So we are fundamentally one in Christ. Now, where the divergences come, this is where we get into the talk of heresy, because in these various denominations, we believe that they are teaching things that, that are not true. Those are the areas where we really have to, that we're really working on the theological dialogues. But it has to be done in this positive spirit of charity and kindness towards one another. So we've kind of overcome that period where we speak of Protestants as heretics or Protestants speak of Catholics as heretics. Yeah. Now we speak of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, some people don't like that because they say, oh, the Catholic Church is watering down things. Well, not really. I mean, we still think that there are certain things that are sure. heretical. But And then when you get into interreligious, it gets even more challenging because our relationship with those who we, with whom we don't share the Christian faith, mm-hmm. you know, our relations with the, the, the Jewish people, the Jewish community, or with Muslims, or with Hindus, or Buddhists. And many years ago, I forget when it was in the 1980s when Pope John Paul II had that famous interreligious prayer event in Assisi to pray for peace. There were these people and leaders of all these different world religions and it really was a, a beautiful thing, but there was also, it was very historic, this common commitment to, to world peace. Hmm. But there was some upsetment because some felt that it wasn't good to, to pray together because it made it look like that each religion was equally true or equally valid as a path to God, which we don't believe that's called religious syncretism. Pope Benedict, he actually on the, I think it was the 25th anniversary of that that meeting in Assisi, he had another event there, another interreligious meeting, but he made it clear that they really weren't praying together. They were really there together, praying individually. It was more like, I guess you could call it a multi-religious prayer, so that you weren't saying the same prayer together but each one was praying according to their own tradition. But again, there are people who say, no, that's confusing, that's not good. But I think you have to be really careful here because, I mean, the popes have gone and prayed, you know, they've gone and visited synagogues and and mosques and everything, and some Catholics think that's wrong, or the popes praying at the Western Wall Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. But I think it's important to see that... uh, uh, that's not wrong. I mean, to go into a synagogue or a mosque, it would be wrong to join in the prayers, in the Muslim prayers. But no, Benedict didn't do that, and John Paul didn't do that. They went in and they visited, 
and they might have said their own private prayer but it wasn't like a a joint prayer um obviously the the muslims don't believe in in the holy trinity you know which is fundamental to our christian faith etc so so this can get a little bit controversial if people are interested in knowing more about this topic there's a collection of speeches and essays that pope benedict wrote when he was cardinal ratzinger on christianity and world religions Mm -hmm. it's called truth and tolerance truth and tolerance so you have to balance this you know we have to be faithful to the truth of our catholic faith but there's also the importance of tolerance for those who are not uh, who don't share our catholic faith so he does talk in that book he writes about this whole idea of multi-religious and inter-religious prayer we could go on and on about this but i i do recommend that as a someone who wants to read more about this is there some things that you would uh, recommend and maybe some things that you would caution against as far as uh, the laity being involved with different, uh, like I'll just throw out some ideas like Bible studies or prayer services or going to uh, like visit mosques or Buddhist temples if they're on vacation or something like that. Are there things that we should definitely, this is a good thing for the world and your faith and some things that might be, well, this is where we draw the line. You should. Yeah. Well, I think you have to draw the line. You, you can't participate in non-Christian worship. I, okay. I think that I would draw the line there. I do not see a problem with visiting a mosque. Um, I visited like Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict. I visited the Blue Mosque in Istanbul, uh-huh. but I wouldn't participate sure. in the, the prayers because I don't share the same faith. Mm-hmm. So I think one has to make sure that uh, one is not compromising their faith. At the same time, there needs to be respect for others and for their religious liberty, you know. But it's part of love of neighbor. I just remember those images of um, the popes when they went into the mosques or when they prayed at the Western Wall that touched a lot of people that that in many ways i think built up kind of a mutual friendship of sorts um that was good to serve the cause of peace all right anything else on this topic no i think that's it but but again i think those two documents sec vacuum council unitatis redintegratio that's the decree on ecumenism and nostra etate which is the decree on relationships with non-Christian religions. All right, great. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can also call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here asking the questions that you have submitted. And our first question is, how do you balance giving everything to and for God and family obligations? Is that a general question of uh, it's about me personally or about people in general? I personally would be interested in both answers. How do, how do you balance those things? <laughs> and, how, and then maybe how do we balance right. those things? Well, obviously, as a celibate and not having a wife and my own children, it's it's less challenging than it is for you, um, but certainly I have 
obligations to God are are certainly number one. And uh, in my life, I do have obviously my family, my friends, etc. And getting that balance can sometimes be be challenging. But I think one should be consistent, for example, with a prayer life. You know, it's good to have a certain amount of time that we devote every day to prayer. But it's also important that, you know, in my life, I can be so consumed with my work that I don't really give the amount of time that I would like with my family and friends. So it's a struggle. Yeah. It's a struggle sometimes. So I imagine for those like you, Kyle, you know, you have the vocation of marriage, you have children, and your Catholic faith. I think integration is really important that we don't just compartmentalize our life. I think that you're living your faith as a husband and as a father. So that means praying together for with your wife, with your mm-hmm. children. So in a sense, you're kind of can combine your obligation to God with your obligation to your family. I do think it is good to, but every person has to discern this for themselves, is having some individual time you devote to the Lord in prayer. And for some people, depending on the age of their children and their circumstances in life, certainly morning and night prayer should be part of everyone's daily routine. But as far as another time of prayer during the day, you know, I think that's each person to decide for themselves. I mean, I know people who who will take time for a holy hour every day, but other people with young children, they may find that very difficult. They may devote 15 minutes or a half hour to prayer. But I think the balance is is really important. Um, I think we have to be careful of of being consumed totally by our family or our work, and then forgetting God. Mm-hmm. You know, that's probably the biggest problem. But there is also the opposite extreme. I mean, you'd be shirking your responsibility as husband or father, and actually, God wouldn't want you to do this if you were taking you know six and seven hours a day to pray every day. And you're not spending time with your kids. Right. I mean, that wouldn't be God's will. So the the balance is what's key. Yeah. All right. Another listener asked, did the Catholic Church order heretics to be killed? Wow. That's a, a, a historical question. You've heard of the, the Inquisition, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of erroneous ideas about out there about the Inquisition, especially the Spanish Inquisition, but also the Roman uh, Inquisition. It would take a long time to get to go through that. But basically, those heretics who were put to death, it wasn't by the church; it was by the state. The church was involved in determining whether a person was a heretic or not. Actually, the church's side in this was much more merciful than the the political or state leaders. Hmm. Um, Many more heretics would have been killed if it wasn't for the pope or or the bishops. Um, However, it was a cooperation because they were there with the Inquisition, but it was really the state that was ordering the heretics to be killed. It wasn't the Catholic Church. All right. Now you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call our text, the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We've got more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Hey, I just wanted to let you know that whatever way that you're listening to this podcast right now, 
could be the same way that you could listen to some of our other shows, like Dr. Doctor, which is a, a great medical show that we have. It's available through the Redeemer Radio app. It's available through any podcasting app if you search for those two shows and also available on RedeemerRadio.com. So if you want to listen to more episodes of The Kyle Hyman Show, if you would like to listen to Truth and Charity or Dr. Doctor, just search for those wherever you get podcasts or look for them in the audio library on the Redeemer Radio app. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. And someone submitted the following question. What advice do you have for people who might find their minds wandering during Mass? Oh, I have a few tips I would give on that. Okay. Um, You know, one of the most important things in my mind is to arrive early for Mass. Mm -hmm. Because I think one's much more easily distracted if one's not focused. So, if you arrive at Mass, let's say, 10 minutes before it begins, and you spend that time just kind of clearing your mind, focusing, you know, praying, then you're not just entering into it with everything that's distracting. I think that's a good tip. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, distractions will happen, and that's, I mean, we're human. So during Mass, there are times where we can become, we'll find our mind wandering. Don't get upset when that happens. When you realize it's happening, just kind of remind yourself and be gentle with yourself to refocus and also to really participate in the mass to say the prayers to sing the the hymns that helps you know what i find i know some people don't agree with this but i like having the missile in other words if you have a a sunday missile or a daily missile where you you can read along with the prayers and the readings Mm -hmm. some would disagree with me on that they'll say no you should just be listening you shouldn't be reading along. Yeah. But I think it depends on the person. I find that I absorb more if I'm reading along. Now, I'll probably get some people who say, Bishop, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but I'm just saying. Yeah. That's just my opinion. Mass isn't, you know, it's not an event for spectators. We should be entering into it. And I just find that when I read, I enter into something more, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I think that can help some people. There is a, uh, I think it was... Maybe a month ago, Kyle, we were talking about St. Francis de Sales, weren't we? Right, yeah. You know, he talked about this. Okay. And this is a few centuries ago. He said, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently and replace it tenderly in its master's presence. Hmm. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back and place it again in our Lord's presence, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. <laughs> That's a quote yeah. from, uh, from Francis de Sales. I thought of another thing is uh, you can bring your intentions with you to Mass, mm-hmm. your sacrifices. Um, I think that's very good, and um, and ask the Lord. I think another thing is to just say, especially if you get there early, Lord, help me to be attentive. Mm-hmm. You know, help help me to to really listen during this mass. Help me to adore you. We ask the Lord for for that grace. There's a beautiful prayer. I think a lot of our listeners probably know the prayer, the Anima Christi. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very beautiful prayer at communion time. 
because sometimes I think, I remember when I was just a little child after receiving First Holy Communion, how we were taught when we come back from communion to take that time of silence and just really, you know, close our eyes and pray and because we just receive the Lord's body and blood. And I, I think that the prayer Anima Christi is a great prayer, you know, where you pray, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me. I mean, it's a beautiful prayer. And I, yeah. I recommend it to people if you've never prayed the Anima Christi. I think it's a beautiful prayer to say after receiving Holy Communion. All right, great, great advice. I appreciate that. Now, our next question is, I would like to follow up on a recent question regarding the anointing of the sick. I thought it was reserved for people about to have major surgery or close to death, but it sounds like it could be appropriate for anyone suffering from a chronic illness. Is that accurate? And also, what's the difference between anointing of the sick and last rites? Yeah, I mean, the church basically is talking about a serious illness. So, the caller is correct someone about to have major surgery, someone close to death, but it also can be someone who is just becoming weaker in old age, mm -hmm. that they can receive the anointing of the sick, like someone that they mentioned who's suffering from a chronic illness, if we're talking about a serious illness, mm -hmm. a serious illness. The other thing about the last rites, they are different. The last rites include more than the anointing of the sick. The last rites would include this, the confession if the person is still conscious and able to go to confession. But the last sacrament of all is the Holy Eucharist, viaticum. Mm -hmm. So when we speak of the last rites, we're really referring to all three sacraments. We're referring to the anointing, we're referring to penance, the sacrament of penance, and we're referring to the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Okay. There's also the prayers that can be said when someone is is dying it's called the commendation of the dying and several weeks ago i don't remember if i mentioned this on a prior program i was visiting memorial hospital in south bend and i was in the icu and someone was dying and they asked me to come in and pray and they asked for the last rites mm -hmm. the man who was dying wasn't able he wasn't conscious wasn't able to receive holy communion or go to confession but i was able to anoint him and then to do the prayers, the commendation of the dying. And they're really beautiful. It included the litany of saints, and the family was gathered around their loved one who was uh, getting close to death. And, it, and the last prayer, it's beautiful. It begins with the words, go forth, Christian soul, from this earth. And you know, as soon as I said those words in that prayer, he stopped breathing. Hmm. I mean, it was a real moment of grace. So anyhow... Um, it's really important to call a priest when someone's in danger of death so that they can receive the sacraments, at least anointing, but also to have those prayers for the dying. If we can go back real quick to anointing of the sick, you said serious uh, illness. Would that mean death is likely or there's a good chance of that or would just uh, if somebody's in a lot of pain and they might it might be in that pain for a long time and not necessarily right. going to die, but there's going to be a lot of recovery or something like that. Yes, that okay. would be okay, too. Okay. Yeah. One more question we have from a listener. Do bishops ever get an annual performance review? 
No, but I do get a lot of feedback. <laughs> uh, unofficial. <laughs> unofficial. Unofficial. Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, some of my colleagues, I'll ask sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, their opinion of some aspects of my ministry. Um, but the only one that I really report to as my superior is the Pope, yep. you know. So, but uh, other than that, it's kind of informal. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for taking time out to share with us again today. And could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Yes, be glad to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Tune in next Wednesday at noon for another all-new episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. The focus on parables continues with Bishop offering his insight on the parable of the unforgiving servant and Jesus' words saying he should forgive his brother not seven times, but 77 times. Bishop will discuss the importance of forgiveness, letting go of grudges, and the gift it can be for the person doing the forgiving. We will also be halfway through Lent next week, and Bishop will offer listeners some encouragement as we try to keep up our Lenten sacrifices. The show will wrap up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. If you have a question for a future show, you can submit it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And while you're there, you can also listen to past episodes or just download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Audio Library. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.